It's ASM Classic Season 2. This show is about Spider-Man from the beginning. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com, and executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. I want to thank you for deciding to give our show a listen today, but before we get started, I wanted to also thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network. Greg Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, Jurgen, and Phoenician, thank you all for your support. And if you want to get great perks such as getting the show earlier and more, check it out at patreon.com slash Network. But before I turn it over to the hosts, I also want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs on the network. Spidey Dude Experience, Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, Clone Saga Chronicles, Spectacular Radio, and coming soon, the Salvi Sima Era podcast. Please follow the network on Twitter, at Spidey Dude Radio, and this show, at ASM underscore classics. And feel free to send us feedback at SpideyDudeRadioNetwork at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting catchers such as Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, Audible. Let us know how we're doing and give us those five stars to help raise our visibility. Your feedback is welcomed and appreciated in advance. Also, leave a voicemail if you'd like, 818-925-6631 if you want the voice to be your voice to be heard on the show. Once again, I want to thank you for listening. And with that, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce our hosts of the program, Jack and Javier Trujillo. Hello and welcome to the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Season 2. My name is Javier Trujillo, and I am joined by my co-host, Persona 5 Royale Master, Jack Trujillo. Um, hello. <laughs> Wow. So today we are going to be discussing two issues of The Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, the first issue coincidentally happens to be the first issue of the series, Amazing Spider-Man number one. And we will follow that, obviously, with Amazing Spider-Man number two. So we are just going to dive right in today. Uh, the first story in Amazing Spider-Man number one, which was cover dated March 1963 is called Spider-Man. Very original title. So credits are Stan Lee writer, Steve Ditko with plot assist art and cover inks, John D'Agostino for letters, Jack King Kirby for cover pencils, and Art Simek for cover letters and the logo design. And Jack, why don't you tell us the synopsis for this issue, which is brought to you by the official index to the Marvel Universe. Okay. Peter Parker, still distraught over his Uncle Ben's death, warns his Aunt May can't afford to pay the rent. Give me rent! To make money, he returns to show business as Spider-Man. Maxie, his agent, insists on paying him with a check that the bank won't cash for him without identification. The Daily Bugle publisher, J. Jonah Jameson, Begins writing and lecturing Spider-Man, praising his own son, astronaut John Jameson, as a real hero, which finishes Spider-Man in show business, forcing Peter to search unsuccessfully for another job. The next day, John Jameson is launched into space. When the capsule separates from the rocket, component 24-3B of the forward guidance package breaks loose, causing Jameson to lose control. With Mission Control failing to rescue the capsule, Spider-Man volunteers to install a spare 24 Free B unit. 
He hitches a ride with a jet pilot, shoots a web line as the passing capsule, and pulls himself to the nose cone where he installs the unit, saving John Jameson. Later, thinking that even Jonah Jameson would now hire him, Peter is shocked to learn the publisher has demanded his arrest and prosecution, claiming Spider-Man has sabotaged the mission. The the FBI issues a reward for his capture, and the public comes to believe he is a criminal, leaving Peter to wonder what he can possibly do. Man, a rough day to be Spider-Man. Yeah. So, looking at this from a historical standpoint, issue one, uh, the aforementioned cover date of March 1963, places it seven months after the cover date for Amazing Fantasy 15, which was August of 1962. So, more than half a year between Spidey's first and second appearances. Which, typically, when everyone celebrates... Spidey's anniversary, they're going off that first appearance of Amazing Spider, or I'm sorry, Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, so it's kind of weird to me. I'm surprised that they haven't done this more where they've celebrated like the first appearance of Spidey anniversary and then the anniversary for the first issue of Amazing Spider Man, because that's something DC has done a bunch of lately where you get Detective Comics 1000. And then you get Detective Comics 1027, which they make a big deal about as well, because that's a thousand issues since Batman came on the scene. But then they also celebrate, you know, a thousand issues of Detective Comics, because, you know, sneaky like that. Yeah, and that just gets confusing. And uh, it's just one issue of Amazing Fantasy. Yeah. Well, just just wait. This is the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man, yeah. but it's not the only first issue of Amazing Spider-Man because I think we're on like volume four or five now. I've lost count. Hmm. Let's see, one, yeah, probably five, maybe four. But anyways, getting into the meat of the story, that first splash page may be familiar if you've played the PS4 game and gone into photo mode uh, because they use a big cutout of that as a um, not a filter um, right. like a frame yeah. for your photo and here it is the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man and we are already in flashback to last issue but seeing as how it was seven months ago people are just picking this up at the grocery store or a convenience store, a newsstand, you're going to have to get new readers up to speed really quick. So I, I get having the flashback. Did you notice anything different in the flashback? Um, do we actually see the um, burglar shooting Uncle Ben? Uh, no, that's all yeah. off camera. So this is the first time we see May's reaction to what happened that night. I, I got to give credit to Stan Lee. I mean, when I first read these comics, you know, I was like five or six years old when I was reading Marvel Tales. But, um, I mean, just the... He wasn't writing down to kids and using simple uh, vocabulary. Here we have Spidey say, I sped through the city via my spider's web, lusting for vengeance. Like, that's not... Something, you know, a five-year-old, a ten-year-old even would probably 
hear every day. Yeah. So I remember looking up many a word from the Stanley issues in the dictionary just to get a better idea of what in the heck Stan is writing about, which I always really appreciated about him as a writer. Yeah, we, we do the flashback. It really only goes for a page, but then we get stuck in Peter's head um, trying to figure out what he can do to help out pay the, pay the bills. The rent. The rent. <laughs> So he tries to go back to show business, and uh, that seems to be working out until it's time to cash the check. Yes. Cut the check, as Anthony Mackie would say. Hmm. But what, what's the issue that Spidey has with that? Um, he doesn't have a license in the name of Spider-Man. And the fact that anyone can wear the costume even though he's the only one with the ability to hang from like the ceiling or something that he could like show off maybe but I don't know I don't know how checks work (laughs) (laughs) well I mean usually it's like you need a form of ID with your signature on it Mm -hmm. but I mean this is so early in his career it's like how many people actually have Spider-Man costumes running around in the first place yeah. So that's kind of funny. Um, but what's important about this is because he's having a problem. Um, you know, we've seen him getting teased at school already, but now he's got this adult responsibility of, of having to pay rent, which that's not something you've had to worry about yet, yeah. but it sucks. And now that Uncle Ben is gone and he feels the need to, to contribute, um, I mean, it's it's a big burden for adults. You know, it can be, depending on, you know, your job and everything, it can be very difficult to try and make those ends meet. And here he's having to do it at such a young age. And it's not something you would see in Superman or Batman or The Flash at this time. Um, this is something that, you know, made Marvel stand apart from its distinguished competition. And already we get... J. Jonah Jameson in this this issue, his first appearance, and boy, does he make an impression. What do, what do you think of J.J.J.? Um, he's J. Jonah Jameson, all right, accusing Spider-Man right off the bat, framing him as a menace. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty much formed right out of the box. There's not... While his character certainly gets developed over the next you know, almost 60 years now. Uh, I mean, he's pretty much fully formed. There's not a lot of change into, you know, who he becomes later on. Like, it's pretty much him right from the start. And we're recording this. It's 2021. We're still in a pandemic, hopefully the tail end of a pandemic. Um, Lots of people are trapped in their homes, socially distanced. But... There's a lot of outrage culture over the last couple of years. Um, cancel culture has become a big thing in our modern society. But if you look back and go to 1963, old Jolly Jonah is like the king of cancel culture. He's already canceling Spider-Man and basically gets him <laughs> fired. Like, this is cancel culture in the 60s. 
he, you know, writes a newspaper article. He goes lecturing at uh, lecture halls to just put an end to Spider-Man. And really, all he's done is like a variety show on TV and caught a burglar. But that's not good enough for old JJ. Yeah. And I love what Ditko does on page five. Uh, as Jonah's talking and, and creating this legend of Spider-Man menace. <laughs> There's a panel of like this kaiju-sized Spider-Man. Oh, just yes. looming large over the city. And, um, and the people just looking up at him. Yeah. And then, of course, he breaks out a picture of his son in full astronaut gear. It's like an astronaut mugshot. <laughs> like, this is what a real hero looks like. And, you know, back then, in, people like astronauts were heroes to normal American citizens because it was something that hadn't been done. And it's still life risky to this day to go up into space. But since it was so new, like, it was a big deal. Buzz Aldrin. Neil Armstrong, all those guys were like American heroes back then. So it makes sense that that John would be seen as a hero too in the public at large. Um, that's the uh, that's our cat. So we go from this story of Peter trying to find a job, getting turned down, to Spider-Man Part 2, where he's now attending the rocket launch of John Jameson. I didn't really think about this much when I was a kid or when I was rereading this as a teenager. Um, but his rocket's going out of control, loses the guidance system. I Reading it today, like rereading it today, I would have thought that, well, it doesn't have the guidance system, that it would just drop like a rock. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why is this... Why is this rocket not just plummeting to Earth in the span of 30 seconds? But instead... I guess it seems like it's going in orbit. He's lost control, but it's in like a spiraling orbit, so I guess they have all this time because Spidey hears about it. They try and drop a net to stop it, but <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, and they just, he's got enough time to web across town and get to this office and, and get the component and get into space. We're not into space, but he goes to a military base to get in a plane with some random pilot who happens take, to trust him. Yeah, <laughs> who just takes him right where the rocket shuttle is. And miracle of miracles, he shoots a web which does not say thwip, but a twing, and uh, manages to catch on to the rocket. Which leads us into part three, where Spidey attaches the doohickey, it lands safely to Earth, and Spidey jumps off, thinking, all's well that ends well, and now he'll be a hero again. And what happens the next day in the newspapers? He wants, or J. Jonah Jameson wants him to be arrested and prosecuted. Since he believes that Spider-Man sabotaged the entire thing just so he could, like, become a hero again and just take the spotlight away from his son. And we'll get into this more um, in the earlier uh, Lee Ditko issues. 
where we get a little bit more of a peek behind Jonah and why he feels so strongly about Spider-Man. But for now, I mean, he is going after him with all guns blazing. And I like how we get Peter getting a little man-on-the-street action, listening to people reading newspapers. It seems really... Not necessarily corny. I don't know. Do you feel it's corny seeing no. the people talking about the papers? No. It it seems antiquated. Maybe that's what I'm looking for in this day and age because no one, no one really buys newspapers anymore. They read their news instantaneously on their phones yeah. or on social media. So back in the day, people would actually have to seek out news and buy it. And I don't know if they stood around like they did in this <laughs> comic, but... Uh, something interesting because these stories have been reprinted dozens of times over the decades. I am currently looking at my Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks Volume One trade paperback. It's got ASM fifteen and Amazing Spider-Man one through five. You are reading what version? Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man Epic Collection, Great Power. So I noticed in my version at the end of the story, there's a wanted ad. Wanted. Caution. He is dangerous. Report him to the nearest FBI office. Spider-Man. Reward for his capture. Spider-Man with a hyphen. What's yours look like? Um, It is wanted. Caution. He is dangerous. Report him to the nearest FBI office. Spider. No hyphen. Man. Reward for his capture. Which is interesting not because you obviously, dear listener, you can't see this, but in my copy, it's an orange wanted poster, uh, and then the center picture, the, the mugshot, if you of you, if you will, of Spider-Man, uh, is a blue background with Spidey wearing his appropriately colored red mask. And Jack, what do you have on your version? Um, mine, the whole wanted thing is all is black and yellow, while the picture of Spider-Man still has a Somewhat blue background with Spider-Man just also just being blue and just only having his black webbing on his costume. Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting how these things get changed over the years and, you know, different people come in and color it differently. I remember reading this when I got this in high school and being struck by how vibrant the colors are, but... Apparently, this was not the original color scheme. Um, And we end in a very dramatic fashion with Peter wondering um, if he really must become a menace to get by in life. And uh, Stan Lee makes it very ominous about what will his decision be? What will he do next? Only time will tell. Or a turn of the page. (laughs) Yeah. So... Before we move on, any thoughts about Spider-Man? Um, I do say that the art is better, or at least like the colors, rather, since they're not as like. I mean, it's still bright and colorful, but like, it's not a whole lot of wacky colors. Like, it goes from like. Green to yellow to red. The backgrounds? Yeah. And Amazing Fantasy 15, which is just kind of 
jarring and weird. And, like, the people, too, are, like, one color sometimes. Whereas here, if, like, everyone is all colored in, even if they're just random background characters, which I do appreciate. Well, it, it's something if you look at, like, um, superhero cinema, certain directors, Joel Schumacher, when they're trying to make a living comic book, you know, when you look at Batman and Robin and Batman Forever, those are very, very colorful movies with lots of weird lit backgrounds and neon lights coming everywhere. And if you look at these older comics, I mean, that's how they did it. There wasn't a reality to it. There's just, hey, this background is going to be red because it's going to make this character pop. Um, versus, you know, modern audiences tend to want more of a realistic color palette, both in their movies and now, I feel like, in their comics. You don't really see uh, this technique anymore. Or even um, the panel you're looking at right now with Aunt May walking away with um, some money from items that she just pawned. She's in front of a blue building, which I doubt is really blue if it were, Hmm. quote, real. Um, But then we have a blue background that Peter's in because he's more of like just, you know, the natural background. What do you think of the the whole rocket mission? I know we poked a little fun at it. Uh, what, what did you think of it? Um, I, I still just think, like, the time span and, like, what's going on still just, like, bugs me. Because he, like, hears about it. Well, first the thing goes out of control. They try and use a net. Then he, like, gets stressed. Goes over to where um, the general guy is and JJ is, talks to them, leaves, goes to an Air Force base, gets on a plane, and then reaches the capsule with John in it. But it's not bad because it ultimately creates the conflict at the end where it turns, like, everyone against him, even his Aunt May, and it makes it so that, like, he's has really no place to go, and it puts him in this lower position than he was before. Yeah, right right from the jump, Aunt, Aunt May is not on his side. So... Definitely something to take note of. Not a lot of uh, high school interaction in this episode. No. He's he's dealing with, you know, we talked about it before, those real-world problems of making ends meet and finding a job. Um, I think there's, like, just briefly a high school scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention that. They they invite him to go see Spider-Man, and uh, the show costs, what, a dollar to get in? Yeah. Which... You know, that's 1963. Here we are, 2021, and it costs $4 just to buy a Spider-Man comic. When you could see him live in person for a dollar back, you know, almost 60 years ago. Inflation, kids. Gotta love it. It's wonderful. So I think moving on to the next story in this issue. uh, This is Spider-Man versus the Chameleon. Uh, Same credits as before. Uh, with the exception of John Duffy doing the letters. 
So the synopsis, seeking a job, Spider-Man decides to join the Fantastic Four. Breaking into the Baxter building, he fights the force and to prove his worth, only to be told the FF is a nonprofit organization that offers no salaries. Across town, the chameleon, a master of disguise and a spy, impersonates Professor Newton, a defense scientist, and steals vital documents. Hearing of Spider-Man's FF visit, he deduces the web-slinger is desperate for money and sets him up by broadcasting a message attuned to Peter's Spider-Sense, offering a profitable venture, then steals missile plans disguised as Spider-Man. The wall-crawler arrives at a rendezvous just as the chameleon escapes, taking the fall for the robbery. Escaping, Spider-Man tracks down the chameleon, prevents the missile plan sale, and turns the spy over to the police. However, the chameleon breaks free, disguises himself as an officer, and convinces the police that Spidey is the chameleon. Fleeing, Spider-Man rips the chameleon's police uniform, revealing his Spider-Man outfit underneath. The police take the chameleon away with a sobbing Spidey, unaware of his victory. Once again, we get a, a big splash introductory page uh, this time with Spider-Man webbing up a giant-sized chameleon menacing the city but we get a bonus extra bonus extra as the issue says of profile shots of the Fantastic Four so right from the beginning of his first issue Spidey is relying on other Marvel characters to prop him up um, and it's something in these early comics I feel like you see a lot of, of other heroes showing up in other heroes' comics to make a more cohesive universe. And it's something that the movies have also glommed onto. Um, granted, it's a lot harder to get an actor to come in to make an appearance than, you know, drawing someone. Yeah. But, I mean, there's dozens of references of people showing up in other franchises to help out. I mean, you've got Thor showing up in Doctor Strange's first movie, Falcon showing up in Ant-Man, and of course, Tony Stark showing up in Spider-Man's first movie. So there is precedent uh, for this type of thing to, to happen in the comics. And the Fantastic Four, who are already a big hit at this point, you know, Having them on the cover is going to get those Fantastic Four fans interested and get them to buy Spider-Man. So the first panel on my copy uh, goes, we know him as Peter Parker, but the world knows him only as Spider-Man. What's your say? We know him as Peter Palmer. Peter who? Palmer. But the world knows him only as Spider-Man. So... First issue, and Stan apparently has already forgotten his character's name. There was an interview I remember watching uh, where Stan had said that one of the reasons why so many of his characters were alliterative was to help him remember their names. That's why you've got, you know, Sue Storm and and Bruce Banner... But uh, apparently it didn't help out too well with this issue. And so sometimes you'll get a copy like mine where they correct these little errors. And then you have other historical versions like the book you're reading or the omnibus that I also have where it maintains the original mistakes. Um, which one do you prefer? Um, 
I honestly prefer the one I have, mainly just because it's funny. Yeah. And I do appreciate the historical value and just keeping it how it originally was printed and just looking back on how it was, you know, originally presented. Yeah, I I totally uh, feel the same way as you do. I mean, not to bring another franchise into it, but it's like I, I appreciate trying to make everything have a continuity, Star Wars, but I also appreciate maintaining the original work, Star Wars. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm good with either way. It, it doesn't irk me that there's the mistake in there. Maybe once it did, but, you know, in my 40s, I just, I don't know. I just appreciate it. Uh, so we have Spidey going over to the FF to try and get a job. Not a great plan. No. <laughs> he doesn't go about it really in the right way. And uh, as it tends to go in Marvel things, so the first time you have heroes meet, they fight. Yes. Uh, as you've seen in, like, the Avengers movie and dozens of other examples. So think of it as an, an audition. But what's what's funny to me is, you know, he's Spider-Man. He doesn't advertise really, at least not at this point, that he's a teenager. Yet Ben Grimm already accuses them of being a teenage cornball show-off just like the torch. Hmm. So, like, does he know, or is he just guessing, or is this just a case of the writer uh, kind of forgetting his own subplot? Not a subplot, but just moving on with with things. Because he knows that Peter's a teenager, so therefore it's just one of those bits that goes unnoticed. But Spidey tries to join a team right from the beginning of his career, and it doesn't work out so well for him. And it kind of sets the stage. It sets the precedent for him being a loner. Yeah. Um, there are various times throughout the years where he, he does try and audition for the Avengers or the Fantastic Four. And it just it never really goes through. He, he tends to be alone. And, I mean, that kind of works with his, his whole mystique of having to deal with things by himself. And while I like seeing him team up with other heroes, in fact, there's a whole book called Marvel Team-Up where it's Spider-Man teaming up with a different hero each month. There's something about him dealing with things by himself that uh, just elevates the character for me. And it's funny, too, because he does eventually join the Fantastic Four, but it's not this Fantastic Four. But that is a story decades and decades away and it's a very short-lived run but uh moving on uh we quickly get to our villain our first real costume villain uh and it's the chameleon now the chameleon's a spy a communist spy which back then were you know still in the throes of the cold war and the political ideologies of capitalism versus communism and if you were a communist, you were bad. That, that's just no other way about it. Um, so here we have a, a spy. And because he was so early on in the first issue, I thought that he 
held a prominence among Spider-Man villains. But I don't really think that's borne out a whole lot in history. Uh, he next appears in Amazing 15. And then I think he's kind of gone for a while. I think it's just those two appearances in the Lee Ditko run. Um, and while I remember him from my childhood, because there's a library book that reprinted a later issue he appeared in in the 70s with Gwen Stacy, I don't really think he's around a whole bunch. And there's other stuff that we'll get into in like the late 300s, early 400s. Um, but I don't want to spoil that for you. So he becomes a bigger player. But for being his first villain, he's not as big as you would think. He's definitely not on the, the stature of Doc Ock or the Green Goblin. But it, And it's one of these things that Lee does a lot in these early issues where someone tries to communicate to Spidey through his spider senses, which, yeah, I'm going to point this out. Like, how does he know that Peter has spider senses? And they don't work like that. <laughs> He, he devises a radio to send him a message. And it's kind of like Superman in Superman the movie when Lex Luthor is communicating to Superman on a frequency only dogs can hear. Apparently, any spider can, can hear this message to Spider-Man and uh, uses it as a, as a trap to lure Spider-Man to a robbery location. So coincidentally... He's got a gun that shoots out webs. It looks more like a blow dryer. <laughs> um, but uh, since we talked about in our pilot episode where we compared Ultimate Spider-Man with Amazing Spider-Man 15, I'm sorry, Amazing Fantasy 15, uh, there is a pseudo-chameleon arc in a Gwen, Sta- Gwen Stacy, featuring Gwen Stacy and her dad, I think, in Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, where there is a, a burglar wearing the Spider-Man suit robbing banks. Hmm. That kind of parallels this, but I don't. if I remember right, it's not really the Chameleon. But it's reminiscent of this. So Chameleon, dressed as Spidey, gets into his helicopter, leaves the scene right as Spider-Man arrives, which is pretty good time. We see uh, Spidey's spider sense go off with the really cool, wavy, jagged lines. And then he um, shoots a web line out of each arm, pulls back like a slingshot, and uh, lets himself go into the air to get across the city fast, which is something not only you can do in the video games, but it's something we see in the climax of the first Spider-Man movie as well. So that's a little trick that moved all they got all the way from the beginning of Spider-Man's career. <laughs> Just like the first story of this issue where he hitches a ride on a jet, now he's hitching a ride on a boat. Yeah. It's like, granted this is before the Adam West TV show, but I feel like Spider-Man should have like a spider plane and a spider boat. But instead all he gets is a spider buggy. He sees uh, this communist submarine, which, based by the hammer and sickle, it's probably Russian. And the fact that they say comrade, because every Russian says comrade. And uh, they they rabbit out of there, and Spidey catches up to the chameleon, rips off the door, and is like, end of the line for you, commie. So <laughs> it's very politically charged, this first issue of Spider-Man. What, what do you think of this escape? It's uh, very quick, and um, 
don't know. It's weird that he, like, steals a boat to, like, go across the sea to just see, you know, an everyday communist submarine sticking out of the water right near New York just because and then like I don't know well it's like he's in high school what would be the odds that if I threw you in a boat you would know what to do with it I don't know he's smart I guess you know science Uh, I don't know how much yeah but like to pull another MCU reference like Thor puts Bruce Banner in front of the controls of the jet He's like, well, he's one of your PhDs to fly it. It's like, I don't have a doctorate in flying. I'm paraphrasing here, but I mean, I guess you can kind of figure out like turning on the key and figuring out the throttle, but it, it's just funny. Maybe Uncle Ben took him out one time for fishing or something. I don't know. <laughs> so he, he catches the chameleon and uh, brings him into the authorities, but Parker Luck strikes. And the chameleon gets away and disguises himself. I, I really like it in um, these issues when Spider-Man is in the dark and how Ditko juxtaposes the costume, and how it's colored, just everything's black and then Spider-Man's in like black and like a light blue. Um, this isn't the first time that we're going to, or this is the first time we're seeing this, but it isn't the first time that we will be seeing this because it'll be used again. Um, I like seeing Spidey coming out of the dark and how the blue parts of his suit just go straight black. It makes for some cool images, I think. And it gives some good opportunity to like demonstrate his spider senses mm-hmm. and feel his way through the dark. Yeah, I buy. I buy more that his, you know, spider sense is alerting him, like a low level tingle. That the person who's meeting him dangers in the room compared to, I'm going to talk to you on this wavelength yeah. kind of thing. But the chameleon turns the tables briefly on him. Spidey gets frustrated and runs away. And then they see that the chameleon's got a uh, costume on underneath, which reminds me of earlier in this issue. I meant to point out, and I forgot. When he's going to rob the place, he shows up as the elevator guy, the elevator operator, and he's got a mask on, right, of the elevator operator's face. Yeah. But then when he's inside the elevator, he pulls the mask off, and the Spider-Man mask is underneath it. It's like, how does that how does that work? Because if he, he talks to the other elevator operator that he relieves, it's like, so when he moves his jaw, <laughs> is, is the guy seeing a Spider-Man mask underneath <laughs> his lips? Or I, I know I'm overthinking it too much but it's just it's just one of those things I mean he like only says I'll relieve you now yeah it's just like a single sentence maybe he's kind of talking down on the ground being a shoegazer I don't know but uh frustrated Spider-Man climbs up the wall and they're like look at him look at him go up that wall he was the real Spider-Man it's like well the other Spider-Man the chameleon Spider-Man shot webs you know Like, the chameleon could have suction cups under his costume, which I think he does in a later issue. But Spidey runs off. He's upset. Nothing turns out right. Sob. I wish I'd never gotten my powers. In addition to sounding a little Luke Skywalker-y, <laughs> props to Stan Lee. I mean, he's, Peter's upset right now. And 
I don't really think you would see that in many other books at the time. Like he's he's a teenager and he's frustrated and it's, you know, making him upset. And that cuts us to the Fantastic Four uh, closing the issue out where they're wondering about how strong he's getting. If he's a teenager now, how much stronger is he going to be when he gets older? So again, Ben Grimm knows Spidey's age and already the Human Torch is taking a liking to Spider-Man. Maybe not his alter ego, but certainly to Spider-Man. We close out with that thing. Like, even Stan Lee is playing up the threat or menace angle of this, or hero or menace angle of this. Like, it's not cut and dry that he really is going to stay on the side of, you know, good. And if you look at, as we, as we go through the, the series and look at it, like, a lot of these people have accidents just like him. They get worn down by society, just like Peter does, where he's picked on all the time, and they turn to villainy. So, at this point, you know, it could go either way for him. What do you think? Well, knowing Spider-Man, I, I doubt that would happen. In main, like, mainline comics. But, you never know. Since I haven't read most of these... Or, like, anything from this era, like, past Doc Ock, once we get to him. Oh, so, first three issues, then. Yeah, and again, there's no high school stuff in this issue. So his his social life kind of takes a backseat, probably to draw new readers in with the action, um, before we get to that later. So... We've pointed out the year a couple times already. It's 2021. This came out in 1963. Does this issue hold up for you? I would say, like, the the second half with the chameleon is a bit more exciting, Mm -hmm. I guess, and less, like, nitpicky about the whole thing, but I still find them more entertaining than, like, and exciting compared to... His first appearance in Amazing Fantasy 15. Yeah. And yeah, I still enjoy it. What uh, what letter grade would you give to these two stories? Uh, probably... Minus? B minus. Is that overall for both of them, or yeah, are they overall. both? Okay, is one is one story better than the other? I guess you kind of answer yeah, that. I, the second one is I more like... the chameleon story. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'd probably have to agree with you. I mean, it's you. You say Stanley and Steve Ditko, and I kind of want to just say every grade is an A. Because they've their pairing and their creation has become so iconic. But, I mean, is this a Spider-Man story I go back to and reread all the time that really gets me? No. Is it bad? Definitely not. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd probably say, like, a, a solid B is a, is a fair grade. I mean, it, it's certainly, it's definitely not a C. And, yeah, they're, they're the little signs of the time with the astronaut stuff and the the uh, commie line and, and everything that are definitely of that era that date it, but I don't, it, I don't, it's never bothered me when I read it when I was younger. Granted, I was closer to that time period when I read it. Um, but even now, it doesn't necessarily 
throw me for a loop because, you know, I still watch old Bond movies from the 60s and all that. So it's a a pretty decent debut. It's interesting to me that at the start, we got several Spider-Man stories in the first issue. And that first Spider-Man story is broken up into three parts because, I mean, this is this is an anthology book that got turned into a single character book where they would have, you know, three or four stories in Marvel uh, or in Amazing Fantasy. And now that it's focusing on a character, we're getting smaller stories, but it doesn't last for very long. We've got one more issue to go before it becomes a full-blown epic with Amazing Spider-Man number three. But... To hear our thoughts on Amazing Spider-Man number two, well, let's just dive into that right now. All right, so Amazing Spider-Man number two, cover dated May 1963. The first story is Duel to the Death with the Vulture. Stanley Ryder, Steve Ditko, plot and art. Joe Duffy letters, Art Simic cover letters. Jack, why don't you tell us the synopsis for the second scintillating issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Of course. The Vulture is terrorizing New York City, and a Daily Bugle publisher, J. Jonah Jameson, demands photos for his Now magazine. Leaving that, learning that the Vulture photos would be worth a fortune, Peter Parker asks Aunt May for a camera. She gives him Uncle Ben's. Soon, the Vulture publicly announces his intent to steal the Park Avenue Julie Exchange's diamond transfer. Spider-Man encounters him, but is so busy snapping pictures, he alerts the Vulture who circles behind, stunning him and dropping him in a water tower. Awakened by the cold water, Spider-Man discovers his web shooters are empty and must dive to the bottom and propel himself up to escape. Back home, Peter develops his photos and whips up an anti-magnetic converter to counter what he suspects is the Vulture's magnetic-produced power. He sells his pictures to J. Jonah Jameson under, under the condition that he never asks how he managed them. With the police guarding against an air attack, the Vulture emerges from a manhole to seal the jewelry, escaping through subway tunnels. However, Spider-Man arrives and uses his inverter Grounding the Vulture. Peter then sells the photos to Jameson and pays Aunt May's rent for a year. Rent? Man, that's a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) That is a lot of money to pay rent for an entire year. He also says at the end of it that he'll get her new kitchen supplies as well. Man, Jameson was paying some bank back then. I mean... I don't know what property taxes were like in New York in 1963 or any of that, but that sounds like a lot of money. I mean, I know they were exclusive photos, but, and magazines were a bigger thing back then. I don't I don't know how you get away with that. So, walk us, walk us through this issue here, Jack. You just gave us the synopsis from the official index to the Marvel Universe. What are some of your opening thoughts on this first appearance of the Vulture? Well, I really like how it starts off with the first panel. Um, you see just some civilians walking by with a big, like, shadow of just, like, a normal... Well, I don't want to say normal since it's huge. Like, a bird vulture. And then it, it cuts the next panel where you see it's just a man in this great big green wing suit flying ahead. I really like that. And we get some 
very like detailed faces for once that kind of look ridiculous of the people but well they're shocked yeah and and Steve Ditko if anything I mean he has some memorable looking faces they weren't your typical generic faces they all had character to them um he he was really good about I'm not making them look shocked necessarily, but he was really good at making them distinct, I mm-hmm. think. Um, someone else may have just kind of done generic faces, but he really makes the people feel somewhat diverse. Yeah. Granted, not every panel is like that. I mean, you look a couple panels down and the high school kids, they, they seem a little more... Um, less detailed, let's mm-hmm. say. Granted, there's a whole lot of text covering most of the page. Uh, Stan Lee loved him some words. I mean, it's it's almost comparing apples and oranges, or maybe oranges and tangerines. If you look at a current Amazing Spider-Man issue to one that Stan Lee wrote, like it'll take you twice as long to read a Stan Lee comic, which I'm sure is an observation we'll make. For episodes to come. <laughs> what do you think of the vulture being green? Um, I mean, I kind of just know him as being green. As ridiculous as like a color palette it is since he's a vulture. I can't think just... of too many green vultures in nature. Yeah. Um, but it's just like his iconic look. I'm kind of... For like my years of knowing Spider-Man, I just accept that he's green. Yeah, there was um, a message board poster on the Spider-Man crawlspace back in the day, uh, whose uh, username was Ditko Loves Green. And if you look at it, Sandman had a green shirt. Obviously, there's a Green Goblin. Doc Ock's jumpsuit is normally green. Mysterio had green and purple. The Vulture's green. I think early printings of Craven's first appearance, his vest was green. Scorpion is green. Uh, Electro was green. Uh, the list goes on. So We'll see some more green after the Vulture part of this issue. Oh, yeah. As well. For sure. I found it funny that, you know, in issue one, we established that Jameson is the publisher of the Daily Bugle, and now it's issue two, and now it's... Now Magazine. Now Magazine. With, of course, Jameson's name way above... It's bigger than the title of the magazine on the building. Um, So, I mean, Jameson, you know, was a, a king of all media. He apparently did newspapers, magazines, and then he would show up on TV and radio and give speeches. So jumping forward decades into the future, uh, it's kind of cool now that he's adapted with the times and is doing a podcast in recent issues of Amazing. But I'm kind of curious if this was a mistake on Stan Lee's part, like he forgot already what he established a month ago because he was doing so many comics, or if he really was like branching them, like this isn't a mistake, he was branching them out to show these different uh, uh, publishing methods on purpose. Uh, And I'm sure someone listening probably knows the answer to that and is yelling at us. I don't know. I find it interesting and curious at the same time. P. 
Peter gets his idea to make money by selling photos. That's yeah. a his start of his famous human, regular, average person career. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. So he gets his camera. Um, is it his camera or is it well, some... his Uncle Ben's Uncle camera. Uncle Ben's camera. Makes it a bit more personal for him as he's, well, for both sides of his job. One where he takes up, like, makes a vow after Uncle Ben's death and becomes Spider-Man and then just using his camera to help him and Aunt May out. He doesn't really do that in the MCU movies, does he? Not really. That's one element they've kind of, along with Uncle Ben, is left by the wayside of those things. I mean, it was definitely there in the Raimi movies. And it's definitely in the Amazing movies, uh, because Flash breaks his camera at one point. And it's a mechanical camera, too. Well, they're all mechanical. But he... He's shooting film, if I'm not mistaken, at least in Amazing One, instead of going to, you know, just digital, um, which is kind of cool. I like the throwback of that, but that's the movie's not not this awesome comic we've got right here. Yes. And then we get to see The Vulture, which, going back to what you said about faces, he definitely has a distinct look about him with like the way his nose is kind of pointy and curled over like a vultures yeah and he's got these big big eyebrows the vulture decides to pull a pretty ballsy move and just throw a rock <laughs> with a note through a win- window in the police station it's just like hey I'm gonna steal a thing yeah it's it's quaint I mean, this is an era before Snapchat or Twitter or any kind of social media. So if you wanted to get the word out, you didn't go to your YouTube channel. You apparently wrote a letter, (laughs) took a rubber band, attached it to a rock, and threw it at buildings. And uh, just waited for the response. And where does he... He does like three different rocks... One is goes to Jameson's publishing company, so you know he's a big deal. It, the Bugle's not just some penny ante news, newspaper. It's got a huge reach if he's going to them above, like, the New York Times. or. And then secondly, he goes to a radio station. Because I guess in 63, um, maybe not everyone had televisions, I'm assuming. That radio is probably more of a mass form of communication I should probably know my history better. I know Star Trek came out in 66, and that one of the big deals for that, like it was with the Batman show, was that it was in color. So it there was still the whole black and white and color thing going on back then in that decade. So I'm going to assume he chose radio over TV as a more effective means of getting the word out there. And then does he which put does it say what police station he goes to? No, just, just the, the police, police chief. chief. So a lot of a lot of monologuing by the vulture. <laughs> yes. Let's see. But it's not long after rock throwing, right, that he meets Spider Man for the first time. Yeah. He's trying to take picture get up close and take pictures. But the vulture 
takes this as a threat and decides to do a loop-de-loop and smack him in the back of the head and then toss him into this water tower to drown where we see um, Peter just taking some of the downsides of being a spider. Well, not really, because if you just toss a normal person in there, they wouldn't crawl out either. He does this weird thing where he dives under and then, like, pushes himself off the ground, which just launches him out, like, right off the top somehow. Through the power of quads, I guess. Well, I think it's it's funny, you know, to create some sense of peril. He thinks to himself that it's too wet for his sticking powers to stick. Like, that is a nasty water tower. Yeah. If he can't get a grip through, you know, his gloves. And, I mean, there's... Obviously, the whole thing isn't wet because he's got that air pocket. Mm. So... I mean, it shows off his smarts that he can figure out how how to get out, like another way of doing it. But it is kind of funny that no, it's too wet for me to climb, and I'm I'm sure we'll see him climb up even wetter things as the years go on. What's what's key to note is his first encounter with the vulture. He doesn't exactly come off as a winner. No. Um, but what I like about it is he goes back to his homemade lab, and thinks about it and comes up with a device that might help him win the day and that it takes him some time to do it too. Where a poor kid got all the parts for this, I don't know, but I'm glad he did. I mean, he has some tubes and flask all around his room so he's not terribly poor. As we mentioned earlier at the end of this, he gets enough money to pay Aunt May's rent, so... He upgrades his equipment. Yeah. And then we get to see Peter kind of looking like Clark Kent a bit with the glasses and just, like, the blue, like, suit. Yeah, that that shade of blue was very much a, a Clark Kent suit color for the longest time. I mean, a lot of times Clark would wear like a fedora, but I can I can see why you would also think Clark Kent with that. I mean, at the time when I wasn't really reading Superman, I was reading Spidey as a little kid. That that Peter just always wore a blue suit. But yeah, looking back in history, maybe he is taking a little uh, homage to Clark there from the Distinguished Competition. Yeah. It's also worth noting that while. Spider-Man and Jameson met last issue, this would be the first time that Peter meets Jonah. What a wild, tempestuous relationship they have throughout the years. Yeah. Trying to kill each other, marrying each other's relatives. Well, only Jonah marries... No, I take that back. Jonah's dad marries Aunt May. Yeah. No, it's a thing. Oh boy. Jonah has a dad who's like Jay Jameson. He falls in love with Aunt May and they get married until something happens and Peter's unable to save him and Aunt May's a widow again. So yeah, at one point, you know, Peter and Jonah are in-laws. Wow. 
it is definitely a wild contrast because he takes like a super big liking to Peter and pats him on the back and just asks him to if he ever gets more fo photos like come to him first because he's willing to pay well it's funny that you you put it like that because yeah he is being very sweet to him right now and excited to meet him but that's just like to get his initial hooks into him yeah because very quickly you know he starts becoming a skin flint now that that he's gotten peter used to the idea of selling photos of the bugle then and he becomes more of a regular employee then jonah starts to treat him a little unkind we'll say we'll put it like that and then we get Peter's classmates again just like inviting him out which was one thing that I was thinking about reading this issue that despite the fact that they pick on him all the time they also like invite him out a lot yeah which is just like I don't know it's just a strange juxtaposition is that the right word yeah well he's he does get invited but even though he's with the group, he's still, like, a loner yeah. in the group. Like, he's not exactly fitting in. Maybe they're inviting him so they can have someone to rag on while they're out and about and make fun of them in person. But, yeah, that's a, a good observation. So the, the vulture goes to commit his second robbery. And instead of attacking from the sky, which they're ready for, he goes through the sewers instead. And he pops out of a pretty big, like manhole. Yeah. Because it fits like his whole wings and... Oh, it's ginormous. Yeah. And then like, the sewer system too is very large. Pops out, steals the diamond necklace and flies away. And then we finally get Spider-Man going to chase after him and do battle with him in the air. And I really like the one shot on 12 where Spider-Man has, like, his camera on one hand and has the vulture's leg in another. Yeah. And he looks very determined. It just looks cool. Well, I mean, he's got yeah. the camera affixed to his hand by the strap. Yeah. And, like, given the aerial combat that's ensuing, like, that might not be the most secure way to... <laughs> carry your camera with you. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is a nice, it's a cool little detail. And one of the things I really love about this fight is he doesn't beat Bol Vulture because he's stronger or because his power set is better. I mean, he beats him because of something that he thought up. I mean, that, that device was something that Peter brought to the table. That wasn't just some accident from the spider bite that let him figure that out. Yeah. It's using his intelligence to create a little gadget to stop him from flying somehow. I don't know how magnetics work, but I don't think that would allow someone to fly, but... But it's comics. Yeah, it's comics. <laughs> I mean, a radioactive spider bite would probably just give him cancer and kill him. So sometimes you just got to let things slide. Yeah. We, of course, 
get Peter to take a last couple of pictures before going to sell them, where he makes this big stack of money. Yeah. And again, pays for Aunt May's rent for a full year. And then right afterwards, we get to see the vulture plotting of a new plan in his costume, just hanging out in jail. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, they let him keep his costume in prison. Do you think they would strip him down and put him in some, like, prison orange? That way he didn't have any, like, hidden weapons to escape. I don't know. They just... They just let him keep the suit, I guess. He's a bird in a cage. One thing that uh, I picked up on, because I looked at two different versions of this... My uh, Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks trade paperback that has issues one through five, and then my Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus. And early on in the story, uh, Flash—I'm sorry—Peter calls Flash Thompson Moose. In my Omnibus and in your copy, which is the Epic Collection, you've got the original Moose, but my Masterwork version corrected it to Flash. Just a funny little side note. I feel like Moose was like a generic term that they would call like a big football player type guy in like older movies and stuff. Like a jock. So, again, I don't know if that's just like a football slang term that got thrown in there or if Stan Lee forgot that, no, this guy's name is Flash. Flash. I'm pretty sure they called him Flash last issue. <clears throat> no, I guess not. I don't mention his name anywhere else in the issue. Any other thoughts on the first tussle with the vulture? It's just nice seeing a classic villain appear like this early. Yeah. In the run, finally, like establishing or starting to establish some of what I know. Well, it's funny that that you bring it up like that, because in the last issue, he saves um, John Jameson Mm -hmm. from his uh, spaceship crashing. He meets the Fantastic Four, and he fights the Chameleon. And there was a book that I checked out at the library that had, like, one of the Chameleon's few appearances um, from, like, the Romita era. And I just always kind of assumed he was around more, because I knew of the Chameleon. But really, he doesn't show up a whole heck of a lot in, like, the first couple decades. So for being, like, his first villain, he doesn't have, like, the the staying power or the appearances that a Doc Ock or Green Goblin do. So it's kind of weird that we don't get a major recurring villain until this issue. And even then, we get two villains, and as we're about to see, only one really makes uh, a big impact. Not that the Tinkerer is not around, but I wouldn't include him in the same category as the Vulture. Yeah. So let's let's get into that second story, the uncanny threat of the terrible Tinkerer. Oh boy. Yeah. Art Simic does the letters uh, inside. The, the second story. Otherwise, the same credits as the first issue, or the first story. Obviously, Stan Lee writing, Steve Ditko doing the plot assist and the art. Peter Parker works for famous electronics expert Professor Cobwell over the weekend. 
Cobwell asked Peter to pick up his radio at the Tinkerer Repair Shop, which only charges a dime for repairs. That's a great deal, by the way. At Cobwell's lab, Peter notices that the radio triggers his spider sense. He opens the back and finds tubes unlike anything he has seen. Returning to the shop as Spider-Man, he discovers a gang of green, scaly aliens spying on military and scientific leaders through spy devices in their radios. Spider-Man breaks up the racket and finds the Tinkerer's human mask in his hands, implying he was an alien too. So... I was a little taken aback the first time I read this story. It, it doesn't really feel like... Spider-Man. Yeah, it, it's it's more of like kind of like this '50s aliens era, or like maybe like a remnant of the old Amazing Fantasy title. Uh, Spider-Man and aliens just don't don't quite mix the same way as Spider-Man and some of his other. Rogues Gallery. We'll put it to you that way. Because obviously he does fight aliens like symbiotes, but, you know, that's not always to everyone's tastes. Um, but those are more unique, I would say, compared to... Yeah, these, these are very generic green men on Mars type of aliens with antenna, kind of scaly. There's a little bit of Creature of the Black Lagoon maybe to them. Just, you know, not gills. But they're they're definitely of the little green men fifties variety. They kind of give me Hulk vibes because like they're like little like underwear whatever. Oh purple. Yeah, it has purple and they're all green and kind yep. of muscly. There we go again, green and purple. What do you think of the Tinkerer's design? He kind of seems very vulture y with the nose again. Well see I feel like he looks different because, yeah, he's an old man like the Vulture. And in this issue, we have a teenager fighting two, you know, septuagenarians, assumably. But what what makes him different not only is the glasses, but just that long chin. Um, that just gives him like this craggy appearance that differentiates himself from the Vulture, even though they both do kind of have the hook nose thing going on. But as far as, like, menaces go or threats go, Tinkerer's not up there. It's more of what he can create, I think, that would make him a threat. And even then, he doesn't really do a whole lot. Yeah, he implants with the help of his fellow aliens, like, listeners into different radios and stuff. And then he kind of hangs around when... And yells at Spider-Man when he infiltrates their little hideout. And all he really does is shoot Spider-Man once with his blaster. And then does a quick tussle with him in the end when any when everything's on fire. Peter gets his mask. And that's it. And I like how they, the aliens make their getaway... It is done. We can never again return to Earth. They will be on guard from this day on. Like, that, that, that's it? <laughs> like, they did all this spying. They have all this technology where they can travel to different worlds, but 
one costume adventurer finds them. They're like, the jig is up, fellas. Let's get out of here. And they have this big... It's huge. Like, was there a cloaking device? Or where were they hiding that thing? It's right outside the city against, like, a couple of trees. And when it takes off, there's, like, this big blast. Yeah, like, someone had to notice that. I know the surveillance in the 60s was not as, you know, present as it is today. Someone had to see that thing. I mean, the doc thinks he sees it, but he convinces himself that he doesn't because he's old. I mean, someone else had to have seen it. Let me let me tell you, because we only talked about John Burns Chapter 1 in regards to our pilot episode. And this is one of those stories that when he tackled in his Chapter 1 series, um, where he tried to retcon and explain what happened, that basically this is a gang of criminals who are dressed like aliens to further their plot and th- so they wouldn't get caught and they would throw people off the trail. And so he explains the, the whole, like, We're, we can never come back to Earth again line by, I think it's like the next panel it, it, where one of the guys is like, dude, no one's around anymore. You don't have to keep up the act that we're aliens. Like, knock it off, buddy. <laughs> to, like, explain, like, the old thing. Um, it's something like that. Like I said, it's been forever. Later on, one of Tinkerer's aliens is, in, is revealed to be Quentin Beck, who becomes Mysterio. Really? Yeah. So, one of those guys is Mysterio, allegedly. Mm. Yeah. So, lots, lots of little things that got retconned or changed. Uh, on a more positive note, um, I do like this little scene where it shows like the schematics for Peter's web shooter and kind of like the different parts of it. Where it shows his cartridge, cartridges around his wrist, the spray nozzle, and then the button. And like a little safety catch on before he, you see it shoot, doing his little iconic web press to free himself from his cage. No, it's definitely well thought out. I like the um, the thought that went into the design of it and how it actually functions and and to make sense of it all. And it's it's funny too because it's a skin tight costume. Hmm. And while they put all this thought into the design and what it would look like, and it's so thin that it fits underneath, I mean, really, you would see it bulging out, you know, underneath the spandex. But I like how Ditko, he has like a little nozzle sticking out of the gloves, and he lines it up with one of the holes in the tube that he's captured in, in the dome that he's captured in, and like fires his webs that way through it. Like, Like, I just appreciate the ingenuity of it all. And, you know, over the decades we've had people try and translate that into real life. You had the 70s show where you see his web shooters on the outside of his costume. You have the Raimi movies where they're like, he got every other power of a spider. So he would shoot webs out of his wrists, kind of like Spider-Man 2099 does. Up to, like, the current video games and movies. Um, Andrew Garfield's got... Like, you can see the little external devices outside on his wrists, and they light up. 
Um, and then the Insomniac game, they're like little... They look like little Fitbit-type bracelets that he wears on the outside in his normal clothes and then flips them around, and they're, you know, part of the exterior of the costume. It's like we've kind of... When he gets translated into other mediums, it seems like they've given up on trying to hide or explain the web shooters, and they just have them worked into the outside of the suit. Yeah. Oh, man, that's that's some good Ditko Spidey eyes, though. Yeah. Trying to think of... What else to say about this issue? Well, it's weird because it's really short. Yeah. I mean, it's a shorter story than the first one, even. And it's just so bizarre and out there. <laughs> Spider-Man fights some generic bug alien things in a little hideout. Yeah. And then they go away. We really don't even see um, any of the other high school kids in this, either. I mean, just briefly. And, uh, first, first, and then fourth panel. Yeah. And that's it. It's a, yeah, it's just a quick little, little story. I would, I would love to hear more about why, what changed production-wise, where they went from two stories for the first two issues into just a full page thriller in you know for all the all the next ones. I also think it's kind of funny how Spider-Man Homecoming has the vulture aided by the tinkerer in that movie. Like there's lots of things I like and lots of things I don't like about that that movie. But, I mean, that's definitely one of the highlights for me, seeing them join together on the big screen. It's a nice callback. Yeah, and it's it's not like, oh, we this license plate is ASM number two kind of callback, where they put in, like, issue numbers hidden into codes and, and things in the background. Like, it's more of a... Not even really a story beat. It, I don't know, it's just a nice tie between the two. And that he's not a weird alien. And that Tinker is not a weird alien, but he does use alien tech yes. to make his devices. So, yeah, definitely a, a translation that I, I can get behind. Definitely. <laughs> Any other thoughts about this second issue of The Amazing Spider-Man? Not really. It was just a nice first appearance of the Vulture, and then a weird little adventure... In the second half. Peter's dressing a little little more casual this time out. He's got a black button-down shirt and, like, a brown jacket with his usual uh, blue slacks. It's not bad, though. No, it looks cool. Uh, we kind of touched on this already. How well how well does this issue hold up for you in what is now the year 2021? I mean... <laughs> I mean... It was enjoyable, but I wouldn't say it held up amazingly, pun intended. Yeah. Which uh, which story of the two do you prefer? I mean, I kind of like the Tinkerer one more, just for how weird it is. Hey, no, that's cool, man. It it does feel like this weird little anomaly of a story. Do you think the Vulture one holds up better to scrutiny than the Tinkerer? Yeah, I would say so. 
like I never had a problem with it when I read it in high school, which would have been the early '90s. Looking at it now, it feels very quaint. Just the way of like I'm going to throw this rock, and I'm going to steal this suitcase full of jewels. Like it feels very simplistic. Something that I thought the Raimi movies captured really well was the spirit of like the man on the street. That that aspect of Lee's early work where you've got, like, the commentary by the citizens of New York, and, like, you have them, like, reading the paper about the vulture and all that. Like, that feels... Like, Sam Raimi's movies feel very much a part of that era of Spider-Man. Hmm. And we'll see it more and more as we go further into these early Steve Ditko, Stan Lee stories. I think you'll pick up on it a lot. I mean, next issue... Yes, what's next issue? Next issue is Spider-Man versus Dr. Octopus. The strangest foe of all time. And also see the Human Torch. Yeah, there was a lot of cross-promotion back then. I mean, it's only Amazing Spider-Man number three and the Human Torch has been in two of the issues. Mm. I mean, that's how big the FF were at the start of the Marvel Age of Comics. I mean, they were just everywhere. So I think we're going to leave you with that, folks. We have now discussed Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 and uh, we'll be back with some more classic villains in our next episode. Heck yeah. So, until next time, this is Javi. And I'm Jack. Reminding you to keep your web cartridges full. And stay classy. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, part of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. You can follow the show on Twitter, at ASM underscore classics. Jack and I would like to thank Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Morgan Grant, and John Wilson for allowing us to continue their work on this podcast, which you can find on the Spidey Dude Network. We would also like to thank Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, John Romita, and all the amazing creators who have followed making the web slinger one of the greatest heroes of all fiction. Thank you, and Excelsior.